0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Eurodell University. My name is Emil Kalinowski. I'm joined by Jeff Snyder, the Head of Global Research for Alhambra Partners. And Jeff just wrote an article about the nomination, renomination of Jay Powell, Federal Reserve Chairman, for another four-year term. We know what the financial media think of it. We know what the US Congress thinks of it. We're gonna ask what the bond market thinks of it. We're gonna look at yield curves. Uh, back in 2013 when something similar was happening 2018 when something similar was happening and right now to try to get a sense of what the bond market thinks of it all Jeff uh the the chairman was renominated and uh, I wonder why why was he renominated why not Lyle Brainerd.
1: It was something of a surprise or maybe not necessarily. It certainly wasn't shocking, but it was something of a surprise because I think in the media, at least, there were all sorts of whispers and trial balloons floated about Lyle Brainerd and several other names potentially. And in, in some ways, it didn't seem like Jay Powell had really all that much of a realistic chance, especially given how he was nominated by President Trump. And as every administration comes in following a previous administration, there's always this tendency to want to undo everything the other guy did and do your and put your own stamp on everything that's being done. I mean, that's that's how Jay Powell got nominated in the first place, right? I mean, for, as far as President Trump was concerned back in 2017, Jay Powell was sort of the outsider. At least that was his reputation. That wasn't the, the truth or reality. But Powell was something different, or at least different in appearance that Trump could point to for the public and say, Well, I'm doing different things. I'm doing different things than the last guy did, because that's sort of why I got elected in the first place. So you would think that maybe Biden would, you know, I think that was probably the the main emphasis was that, you know, President Biden was going to do the same kind of thing, put his own person, whoever that might be, into the Federal Reserve chairmanship, because that's just kind of what we do nowadays.
0: Your blog post on the 22nd of November, 2021, hashtag continuity. The least useful person. You tell us why you think, why you believe, with good reason, he was renominated. Quote, what truly matters politically isn't inflation or even economy. Instead, they're all terrified of the Fed's true weapon. I wonder what it is. Which isn't a money printer. It isn't even money. Rather, it is entirely stocks, equities, share prices. What do you mean? Well, think back to 2017. One of the reasons why
1: President Trump felt confident enough, economists that he was listening to felt confident enough to replace one term Janet Yellen was because of globally synchronized growth, the tremendous boom in stocks that had started from basically the day Trump was elected all the way through to the nomination process for Powell. So Trump realized he was on very solid ground that, hey, look, the economy seems to be doing really well. That's what everybody says. And the stock market is at record highs and going up at a near vertical angle. So it's okay. Maybe I can take a little bit of a risk because things seem to be going in the right direction. Everything seems to be very well. Contrast that with, say, Ben Bernanke's sort of renomination, everybody hold their nose in 2009 when it was, you know, the guy had just come off the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression But it was in the early stages of the recovery. The stock market was just starting to come back up. Things were still very, you know, the recovery period was very nascent. It was unsure. It was uncertain. And so hashtag continuity in 2009, nobody really wanted to rock the boat. The last thing that anybody in President Obama's administration wanted to do was to upset what was a very delicate situation. So 2017, things seemed to be rock solid, at least politically. Therefore, change from Yellen to Powell, 2009,
0: for example,
1: Ben Bernanke in the midst of crisis, better keep everything the same because we don't know what would happen if we don't.
0: Now, you just mentioned stocks was the reason that was uh, the President Trump nominated. Someone knew because that was a signal that everything was well. And I think some people may say that you're being rude, that he would be so... Uh, so shallow that you're being rude towards orange people. But it's not true. You're not just making this up, Jeff. On the council, the President's Council of Economic Advisors, that, that group, I forgot the exact name for that thing is, but they had two things for forever on their website that the headline was, the economy is killing it right now because the unemployment rate is down and stocks are up. So you're not being unfair. That was the headline for the Trump administration. But the Obama administration, it seems like, or at least, I don't know if it was the Obama administration, but it was just the sense of it, the same with Bernanke. Here, let me read a quote from August 24th, 2009. Reuters, there has been a considerable amount of speculation in the marketplace, both in the market and among observers of the Fed. And going into the fall, the president wanted to end that speculation. That, who who said that? Austin Goldsby, a member of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Got it. I wish that's who I was referring to. He told that to Reuters television. And then later in the Reuters article, U.S. stocks were slightly higher in the afternoon trading, buoyed, buoyed by news of Bernanke's nomination. Stocks, stocks, stocks.
1: It's always stocks, right? And oh. Look, even in the public perception, we're told pretty much from the very beginning, we're all taught from... First economics class on through, and, and the message reinforced in all the financial media that we're supposed to take our cues about our global economic situation from Wall Street, from the stock market. Well, we are supposed to take it from Wall Street. It's just that Wall Street, the your Wall Street that actually matters, isn't equities and the New York Stock Exchange and share prices, it's something else entirely. But the public believes that, hey, if the shares are up, then things must be doing well, which is interesting, recalling our conversation last week with Russell Napier. When he said that, you know, when he correctly pointed out this situation is unique to the United States, in other places around the world, share prices don't react in the way they do here. In fact, they reflect more of reality, especially in Asian countries. You know, we were talking about the Asian financial crisis and its aftermath. You know, share prices don't just bounce up all the time like they do in America. And so maybe around some parts of the rest of the world, we can take stocks somewhat closer to their face value. But that hasn't been the case in the United States for a very long time. But you can see why political perception would prioritize the stock market signal, because if politicians believe that the public believes everything is about stock prices, the last thing you want to do is rock the share
0: price boat. If politicians want to manage expectations and provide a hopeful message, then of course they're going to point to the stock market, which generally is rising. But we've known for years, decades, generations now that the stock market, at least in the United States. Doesn't ever predict recessions or anything like that. What does the bond market when the yield curve inverts? So it's not Wall Street we need to look at. It's Wall Street and Lombard Street and West Bay Road in the Cayman Islands where bond market activity is taking place. That's where we're going to turn to next, ladies and gentlemen. You know, Jeff and I are just a couple of old cranks. Who cares what we think? Who- who- Big deal, Jay Powell. We don't like his renomination. What about the largest bond, largest market on planet Earth? What does this collective complex system think of his nomination? Let's go to the yield curve and find out. We're going to be looking at a new article now. Sorry, Jay. Curves hashtag continuity is not a good thing. November twenty third, twenty twenty one, and we're going to be looking at a U.S. Treasury yield curve. The emphasis is on the 2013 yield curve. As of November 20th, I need glasses. What was happening in that time?
1: If the market was saying that, you know, stocks were right about the uh, the, the bond market was agreeing with the stock market or the general perception about inflation, growth expectations and things like that, we would have seen the yield curve continue its rise and steepening from earlier in the year, not pausing around mid-March and continue upward, so that it would at least have resembled the 2013 yield curve as a start. And then we would expect it to continue because, as we know, as steep as the 2013 yield curve got, it was not representative of actual recovery and growth and inflation expectations because those things didn't happen. So even 2013's relatively far steeper curve was still minimal in its perception of growth and, expect- and inflation expectations. In fact, when we map out these yield curves and put them together with historical examples, the current curve as of today is more like the yield curve had been in August of 2019 than anything of 2013 or better. And if you remember August of 2019, Emil, what was going on in August of 2019? You started out this segment by referring to it. That was inversion. That was the recession scare. The shape of the yield curve, especially at the long end of of it, right now today, With taper on the table, with inflation and CPIs and everybody going crazy about these things, the yield curve today resembles August of 2019, almost identically in the in sort of the middle to the back end
0: than anything like 2013 or even 2018. Okay, let's go a little bit one at a time. So we just talked about the 2013 taper. It's called tantrum, but it was a celebration. The yield curve steepened. It's that thick orange line that the audience can see on their screen right now. Opportunity at the long end, economic opportunity and return. Great. Super. Yes.
1: Why would you buy safe liquid assets when everything's going to be awesome in the future? So regardless of what the Fed's doing, we don't want to own safe and liquid because the future's going to be much better. There's nominal opportunities in the real economy. We don't want to own treasuries or GSE debt or something like that. We want something more risky. That's the steepening of the yield curve at the long end. That's Irving Fisher's growth and inflation expectations embedded in in the yields, and that's what the curve should change toward if the economy is moving in the right direction, but not just stopping where it was in 2013, but going further and further steeper, steeper
0: rising nominal rate. Now, let's let's move forward. That was the that was a celebration, economic hope. We're out of this shock, these two shocks that we were in. Unfortunately, we ran into Eurodollar number 3, the Reserve currency crisis uh, in foreign exchange reserves crisis in China, emerging market currencies, the U.S. dollar rising, oil plunging. So we had, a, we had a reset. We were set back. Then in 2018, 2017, 2016, we had something globally synchronized growth. Our next, our last big reflation, our hope relatively big. And now we're looking at a graph that represents economic opportunity at the height of this last reflationary recovery 2018 and i'm looking jeff and it didn't really get up as high as the 2013 number did it the long end
1: no the steepening was less and it was you know it was one of those things where you say you know what's going on here why is it? because globally synchronized growth at least the rhetoric around the inflation and the economic opportunity 2017 2018 was even more overheated and even more assured than it had been in 2013 and 2014. Yet the yield curves were flatter and stunter, smaller, shriveled, whatever, you, however you want to characterize them, which was the market saying as little as we bought economic growth and inflation the last time around a couple of years ago, we buy even less in 2018 than we had before. And of course, as we've done on this show many, many times, we've gone through all the reasons in 2018 why that was, including the fact the economy really wasn't doing all that well. But also all the deflationary potential embedded in what was the nascent euro dollar number four, which was, you know, collateral squeezes, general monetary tightness throughout the global euro dollar system. So as far as the yield curve was concerned, 2018 in globally synchronized growth was less convincing than 2013 had been.
0: We're moving forward now to present day. We had two episodes of recovery, the taper celebration, globally synchronized growth. And then we had the reopening boom, the helicopter money drops from Uncle Sam, takeoff vaccines. And so now we're looking at another chart. We've got three dates here, three curves. March 19th, 2021, October 21st, 2021, and just the other day, November 22nd, 2021. Jeff, let me guess, was March 19th, that was the peak, the steepest, the highest the yield curve got before things started going the other way? And and then what happened in October? And where is November today relative to March this year and 2018 and 2013?
1: You're right. March, mid-March, late March of this year, that was sort of the peak of whatever inflation we got. And you're right. Everything from basically November, December, January seemed to be going the right way. Not only did we have, as you pointed out, we had vaccines, therefore a potential end to the pandemic in sight. We had economic growth and recovery, at least the appearance of those things all around the world. Everything seemed to be coming back up at the same time, sort of a globally synchronized rebound. Plus we had, as you pointed out also, massive doses of quote unquote stimulus in the United States in the form of direct helicopter payments, but also fiscal and monetary programs all over the world in sizes and scales that we have never, ever seen before. So, you know, November, January, February seemed to be everything that possibly could go right was going right, except in the bond market. In the bond market, you had the yield curve that did steepen, that did, you know, nominal rates did rise, but nowhere near even 2018, let alone something like 2013. In fact, it was so small and it was almost insignificant. Yet that doesn't seem to compute with everything going right, unless you realize the bond market is telling you that it seemed like everything going right, but not everything was actually going right. In fact, there were other problems and other factors that we needed to take into account that this massive, sophisticated market was taking account and telling us what its perception of those things were, and they were not good. And so the yield curve shape over the last, what is it now, over eight months, eight months has basically been unchanged. The most recent peak in, uh, steepness in the yield curve was October 21st, which was a little bit less than the, than it had been, except in the front end of the curve. Now we see the front end of the curve start to ship, shift upward, which is a reflection of what Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve are likely to do next year. And then the back end of the curve, which is saying, these guys have it all wrong. They're gonna taper, they're gonna do rate hikes, but that's not going to be because there's growth in inflation, because there is no growth in inflation. So like 2018, since around March, we've seen not only the, we've seen the particular part of the yield curve, the five year, 10 year spread has flattened noticeably, which is an indication that the bond market is rejecting the growth and inflation
0: story behind the Fed's taper and eventual rate hike. And Mr. Powell's renomination, that anything's going to change.
1: Yes. Hashtag continuity, because that's going to continue too, right? This bond market skepticism is actually even more robust after his renomination, because the curve is as flat as it's been in that all-important five to 10-year space. It's as flat as it's been since May of last year, May of 2020. That's how flat that part of the curve has got. Wow.
0: May of 2020. We were getting out of the worst of it. That was the low point, or maybe April was, but that was an awful time.
1: So yeah, if you want the way to look at it, is it's as flat as it was been as it was in early 2018 or the middle part of 2018, which is that's not a very good comparison either. Especially because in the middle of 2018, both the curves are moving in the same direction, which means in 2021 we're seeing the curve flatten just like we had in 2018. So we're moving in that same direction, which is not the good direction. You've written
0: about this before, ratcheting. We have seen the U.S. Treasury yield curve and Eurodollar futures ratcheting down with each reflation. The 2013 best-shaped yield curve was worse than the one we saw in 2009. The 2018 globally synchronized growth was worse than 2013's peak. And now here we are in 2021, it's worse than what we saw in 2018, and he, you summarize the article saying, in other words, the best and most historically validated inflation slash growth measure humans currently have available, the one thing to rely on in lieu of discovering some infallible crystal ball, this indicator is actually behaving today with even more, is even more skeptical of Jay's mainstream inflation fantasy than it had been, correctly remember, three years ago. Jeff, we I know what some of the audience members are saying, including members of the media that are watching this right now and the administration, and they are saying Pfft, the bond market. Look at those two old cranks still going talking about the bond market, like it's not been manipulated and addled and con- put under the control and assimilated by the Borg that is Federal Reserve. In part two of this episode, We are going to address that question. Is the Treasury market under control of the Federal Reserve? Can we rely on it? Does QE control what's happening with yields? We're going to talk about that next. Does the Fed rig the bond market? That's what this article here in the Wall Street Journal by Lawrence Goodman says. How the Fed rigs the bond market. Sales by... Vigilantes used to serve as a warning of inflationary policies. That signal has been muted. My name is Emil Kalinowski. This is Eurodal University. We're joined. I'm joined. We're all joined by Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Jeff, I believe this article was inspired by your appearance with our friend Eric Townsend. He's so kind to mention me. You know, you guys do a whole show, and at the very end, he says, like, You guys are doing a good job, and Emil's on the show. That was very kind of him. It was the best, that podcast, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't heard it, that was the best Bloodsport podcast battle I've seen since Jean-Claude Van Damme went to South Korea and battled that South Korean guy. Remember that in Bloodsport 1989? Jeff, tell us what happened. and and, Because there was one moment where Eric said the bond market can you rely on it
1: yeah and i think that's really what most people say or at least they they're, they're conditioned to say is that when you say bond yields are low therefore growth and inflation expectations just aren't there they immediately scoff and say well no bond yields are low because the fed is buying bonds and the fed controls interest rates and the mechanism for controlling interest rates is qe so how can you possibly say the bond market doesn't doesn't see growth and inflation because the bond market is nothing more than the plaything thing of, of Jay Powell and the FOMC. So forget this bond market crap. I mean, the Fed has got rates low. And so we're going to look at – we're going to dismiss that signal because it's so inconvenient to our thesis. And we've been crying about inflation for year after year after year. It never happens. So – you know, how, how dare you, bond market, disagree? You must be the Fed's plaything.
0: Otherwise, our idea is just crap. You know, the bond market, I understand where people are coming from. I'm going to explain why that is. You, you explain as well that it makes sense. But how come we never hear about Euro dollar futures or the U.S. dollar, the two other markets that are the biggest in the world, a complex system of humans providing independent, multiple independent opinions about the direction of the global economy? The U.S. dollar, euro dollar futures corroborate what U.S. Treasury markets are saying. And we never hear about how that's being manipulated. Top spreads,
1: Exactly. You know, and this is a point you raise all the time, Emil, and I'm glad you do it because it's so it's it's before we even start about the, you know, QE and bond yields. It's not just bond. yields. That's why when we talk about the bond market, we use quotation marks because the bond market isn't just U.S. Treasuries. It's everything. There's all sorts of very sophisticated, very deep and liquid markets that are incorporated into this fixed income structure, this monetary structure globally, that it's not just treasuries. It's all sorts of things. As you just mentioned, Eurodollar futures is one, which is very much corroborated. As you point out all the time, I don't see any Eurodollar futures positions on the Fed's balance sheet anywhere. Interest rate swap spreads, interest rate swaps, those prices, the Fed's not in that market either. The U.S. dollar's exchange a very simple one, which is a measure of monetary tightness—which would be go, which would go along with the message being sent by low interest rates, if they're not being controlled by the Fed's QE. Yeah. Which is, you know, the Fed isn't buying all of these other things, as well as you know, as we we see in data of like TIC or the People's Bank of China's balance sheet. Are the is the Fed and the People's Bank of China balance sheet uh, clandestinely conspiring? to rig treasury markets or, you know, the influence of U.S. dollar markets so that we're not generating a genuine signal in these places? Of course not. What really happens is that the bond market provides a very inconvenient signal because it is so historically validated to people who have been forecasting and crying and predicting about runaway inflation for so long. They need a very easy shorthand that the public that believes is very plausible to dismiss what is otherwise a very straightforward contrary indication.
0: In episode 166, if I remember correctly, ladies and gentlemen, I read the BIS bulletin number 48, where they do a nice short brief review of supply chains and the upstream and downstream effects and how they believe that is what is affecting these consumer price surges. So it's a, it's a good article for you to listen to and then check out check out in the show notes when it comes to why prices are high. So, so Jeff and I believe. Okay, here, quote, where am I getting this, by the way? I'm getting this from a post on the 18th of November, 2021 at the Alhambra Investments blog. The title is, No, the Fed does not rig the bond market and it only takes five seconds to debunk the myth. You're not allowed to curse and do expletives, but I feel it was coming. It was coming. Okay, quote, and on the surface, central bank bond buying does sound like it could possibly spoil the message. After all, some all-powerful government agency is going to be, you know, buying bonds at prices that have nothing whatsoever to do with any sort of fundamentals. It will take them, purchase them by the bucket load at whatever price. So how can it not keep prices artificially high, therefore yields artificially low? Jeff, we're going to be going chart by chart now, but just very quickly, we're going to be focusing on the U.S. And do we have Europe in here too?
1: Yes. You know, again, that's where we start, right? Because whenever you bring up this idea, that's what people will say. Well, the Fed is buying bonds, but how can it not be affecting the price? But that's where everybody leaves it. It's like we just accept the fact that bond buying must affect the price or that central bank bond buying must affect the price because that's what everybody says. And it sounds like it should be what's happening. But as we know all too well, theory and practice are usually very different things. So in theory, this sounds very simple, but everybody just leaves it at the theoretical level. They never say, okay, Let's validate the theory and see how it worked out in actual practice. And as I said in the title of the article, and you were right, there were a couple expletives that wanted to to come out in it (laughs) because this is such a huge, frustrating pet peeve of mine. It only takes five seconds to disabuse you of all of these notions. The central bank does buy bonds, but it also does not have any effect. And we can show this to you in absolute crystal clear visual representation, as well as any number of scholarship and literature pieces you want to look up written by the central bankers themselves. But again, you just just look at a chart, look at a chart and you'll know that in theory it sounds great, but in practice, it's something else entirely. In fact, it's exactly the opposite.
0: How about this? We can say, yes, government actions do affect bond prices. Yes, they make them higher. But how much? Is it the whole thing? Is it the whole kit and caboodle? No. On the anniversary of QE, the 20th anniversary of QE, we reviewed a meta study, which I don't know how many different studies are represented, but it found that the median impact on bond yields was 50 basis points about, right? Not even. They said about 50 basis yeah, points that, for they every- Yeah, didn't
1: give us the confidence range either. I'm sure it was plus or minus a bunch too.
0: <laughs> for every 10% of GDP, you get 50 basis points maybe. Uh, so, you know, a little bit, but it's-
1: Even if we take that at face value, Mill, right? Starting where we are now. So let's add 50 basis points to the US 10-year treasury. What does that get us? Barely 2%. How is that inflationary? How is that the Fed erasing this inflationary message? So even if we assume that study is anywhere close to accurate, and again, this is a meta-study of other studies that central bankers have written, and these central bankers authors are looking for positive effects from QE and unable to find it. So even if we say, yes, okay, central banks lower long-term yields by 50 basis points, it still doesn't change the situation one iota. It still says that interest rates are incredibly historically low. And so they're not being held down by QE, they're being held historically low by something else. But, you know, even I'm i am not that. I you, Maybe you're a little bit more optimistic about QE than I am. I look at all these charts and I say, if you can find a tangible effect, a, a singular effect from QE, I don't know where you see it. Because more often than not, it's up and down and all over the place. So the best that you can say is that there really doesn't seem to be any relationship between the Fed's bond buying and bond yields. But moreover, whenever these things stop, Bond prices tend to go up because the situation calls for higher values and higher use and utility of safe and liquid instruments. So in my mind, during the bond buying programs, there's not much of a straightforward effect at all. And then when there's not bond buying, bond prices tend to be up higher than not. So at the very least, not much effect. And
0: more likely, it's kind of the opposite. Ladies and gentlemen, rewind. 30 seconds, re-listen to what Jeff just said, and now we are going to put into pictures what he was saying. And we're going to start in 2008 through 2011. And we're looking at a chart here, Jeff. What do we see? We see U.S. Treasury securities held by the Federal Reserve, and we see the U.S. 10-year yield and the 30-year yield. Now, in 2008, the Federal Reserve is not going out there and canning-balling into a kiddie pool and knocking all the water out and throwing its weight around. They're not doing any of that. And yet bond yields are falling. Then they do take off their floaties, they take off their swim cap and they dive in and they go kawabunga and they buy the by the bucket. All the water is thrown out of the pool and yields are rising. It's the opposite. It's rising. totally the yes.
1: opposite. How are bond prices going down with the Federal Reserve buying bonds, right? That's, the, that's not what the theory says. The theory says the Fed controls interest rates. And here we have a, a prime example during the very first QE where the market behaves, as
0: you pointed out, opposite of what it's supposed to. So not a, not a good start here. OK, we're moving forward. We're entering into 2010. The Federal Reserve is not buying anymore. Okay. They're stable. Bond prices are, what are they doing? They're rising. Federal Reserve is not buying anything. Bond prices are accelerating upwards. Okay. Then the Federal Reserve says we've got to start saving the system. QE2. We're going to start buying by the bucketful.
1: Before you get into that, let's let's talk about that. Why what why did the Fed get into QE2 and what did the bond yields after QE1 actually tell us? So, bond yields that were sinking, actually, they were collapsing after the end of QE1, were a deflationary signal. Undisturbed by the fact that the Fed had just bought all of those bonds, it amounted to hundreds of billions of US treasuries into the Soma portfolio. That's not what caused bonds to rise after QE1 was over. It was the fact that in early 2010, we had all of these alarming liquidity signals all over the world when we had just experienced the great global financial crisis and were told that this liquidity tsunami by the Fed and other central banks had fixed it. And so we had all of these bad signs, especially in repo and collateral in early 2010, that were deflationary, lack of growth, lack of opportunity, high demand for safe and liquid. That's what drives interest rates, not the Fed's bond buying. And here we have a very perfect example in QE1, right off the bat in the United States experience of it, which shows the Fed doesn't barely ha- they doesn't have any influence on bond yields. What does is reality, the real monetary system, real economic potential. And it was that low, what was causing bond yields to sink in early 2010, the deflationary outgrowth of late 2009, that actually convinced the Fed in the summer of 2010 they needed to
0: do QE again. We're moving forward 2011, and now the Fed has stepped in again. So they're buying like maniacs. What should bond prices be doing when the biggest whale out there, Big Mama, the U.S. version, is in there buying everything? Well, bond prices should be surging upward. But they didn't. They went the other way. Bond prices started falling.
1: again. <laughs> you couldn't the give them away. The time in a row. Exactly. The, the Fed starts buying bonds and, and the market starts selling them, <laughs> which is not how it's supposed to go. It's the exact opposite. And then, you know, as you get to the other part of that chart, the Fed stops stops buying bonds. And what happens to bond prices? Bond yield or bond prices go through the roof after QE2 is over. Yields absolutely plummet
0: after QE2 is over. No more buying. Prices surge. That huge buying gravity absent. And yet we're seeing as if there was some other force, some other planetary body had a greater gravitational pull.
1: Well, let's let's explain what's going on here. I mean, yes. we've got two very good examples and they'll continue and get through them. But what is really going on here? If you think bond buying in the central bank means everything, you are utterly confused. This makes no sense to you, which is why, as we talked about in the beginning, people always leave it at the theory and never go back and check and, and, and see if the theory is valid because This doesn't make any sense. The bond market is behaving exactly the opposite the way it should act. But when you realize that the central bank and its bond buying doesn't really matter, and that Irving Fisher was right over a century ago that long-term bond yields are nothing more than growth and inflation expectations, it actually makes perfect sense. Bond yields started to rise in the early parts of each of these QE programs because the market was saying, maybe it'll work. Maybe this time the Fed has hit upon the magic number and this will work. And so growth and inflation expectations rise because the market seems to think, well, maybe QE2, QE1 didn't work, but maybe QE2 will. And so that will lead to better growth and inflation expectations. Now nominal yields rise, but they didn't rise all that much. So the bond market retained a good bit of skepticism, which very quickly was validated because after the Fed's bond buying program is over, the market says, nothing really has changed in fact it looks like we're going into another dollar problem another collateral squeeze whatever it is and so i only want to own safe and liquid instruments which is the other way of saying depressed longer run inflation and growth expectations so it's not really a mystery at all You just got to get yourself out of the mindset that central banks and their bond buying actually mean what it's supposed to mean. In fact, they don't mean very much at all.
0: What happens between 2012 and 2016, Jeff? We're talking about QE3, mortgage-backed securities, and QE4, U.S. Treasury securities. And I see, Jeff, tell me if I've got it right, that heading into 2013, we had yields falling. So bond prices rising, even though the activity by the Fed was minimal to nothing. And yeah, there then,
1: was Operation Twist, but that, I mean, who cares about Operation Twist? Not
0: even the Fed cared. And then we see a surge in buying by the Federal Reserve, a surge, a huge increase, and bond prices should now be rising because the Fed is so important. It's central. It is the sun of our monetary universe Instead, we see the opposite. And then we start into the the, the, euro, the fourth euro, the third euro dollar. But did I get that right before we talk about euro dollar number three?
1: Yeah, once again, you see yields gently rise as the Fed is buying bonds, which is supposed to bring yields down. And then the taper celebration in May of 2013, when yields actually moved much higher, which we just explained was the market saying, you know what, this tapering stuff, maybe there's a reason behind it. Maybe growth and inflation expectations are rising. And so not only the yield curve shape, the nominal yields rose in tandem with why Ben Bernanke at that time was tapering his bond purchases. But interestingly enough, the very moment, or only a couple of weeks after the Fed actually began to taper, which was December of 2013. So the Fed is buying fewer bonds. They're still buying bonds, but they're buying bonds at a much low at a reduced pace. All of a sudden, bond prices start to go up again. So the Fed buying fewer bonds bond prices going up yields falling so that's the opposite and then after QE4 was terminated in 20 late 2013 bond prices went up even more yields fell yields actually plummeted again as they had in 2011 and 2012 so again at best, there's mixed results when in reality, when you put it all together, the bond market doesn't behave at all in the way it's supposed to. In fact, it's, it behaves more likely it's opposite or the, it, it contradicting the
0: theory in practice. And the bond market was reacting to emerging markets experiencing their version of the European sovereign debt crisis and their version of the mortgage-backed security, quote-unquote, contained 2008 crisis that the United States did. That was then happening In 2014 and 16, so that's why bond prices were rising, yields were falling, and now we're heading into what, globally, I have to turn an extra page, here we go, now we're turning into present day, no, now globally synchronized growth, Jeff, 2017.
1: Yeah, let's, so... Let's talk about QT. Yes. You know, if QE is supposed to heavily influence bond prices in one direction, QT, which is the opposite of QT, should heavily influence bond prices in the exact opposite direction, right? If the Fed isn't just, you know, the Fed has stopped buying bonds and is actually reducing its bond holding in its Soma portfolio, I mean, bond prices should be tanking, right? I mean, they would be plummeting. Not only is the Fed not buying, the Fed is not really selling, but they're no longer reinvesting either. And remember, 2018 was the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, which too many treasuries, the deficit exploding. So, I mean, it was, it was horrible time to be a treasury market investor, right?
0: Because prices were going to just plummet through the floor. That's what the textbook says, but not the graph we're looking at.
1: No, if we actually look at what happened, bond yields rose before we got to QT, globally synchronized growth, higher growth and inflation expectations. And then once QT began, at best, they kind of went sideways to slightly higher, which was somewhat consistent with the theory, but not really considering, you know, too many treasuries, deficits, all of those things, plus QT. And then November of 2018, while QT was still ongoing, while the federal government was still exploding its deficit, all of a sudden, bond yields plummet. Bond prices go through the roof, even though Uncle Federal Reserve is not there to save its ass. because. Once again, we see the Federal Reserve and its balance sheet is largely immaterial to what goes on in long-term bond yields, which are driven by growth and inflation expectations, which were globally synchronized growth in 2017, early 2018, maybe a a slightly higher probability for growth and inflation. After the middle of 2018, and especially November 2018, no, we got less growth and inflation expectations as globally synchronized growth had already turned into a globally synchronized downturn, if not recession in many parts of the world, so again, bond yields don 't react to the Fed; they react to
0: that growth and inflation expectations Jeff, if I remember correctly, about half our audience is from outside of the United States, and we want to talk about the rest of the world we don 't have enough time to go country by country, but we do have a couple of graphs here showing Europe. is there any difference, or is the same story being repeated in Europe?
1: Yeah, I included the European experience, specifically German bonds being bought by the ECB, just to show, just to prove, to establish without, beyond any reasonable doubt or any honest doubt that this is not a U.S. phenomenon. It is a QE phenomenon. It is a bond market phenomenon. It's consistent across jurisdictions, as well as time periods, as well as every single factor and dimension with quantitative easing bond yields are not influenced by the Federal Reserve, which if you're honest enough, the Federal Reserve actually tells you, as does a lot of uh, academic scholarship, as we talked about in the beginning, but you don't need all that. Just get out a chart and you can see for yourself how the theory is
0: nothing like practice. At the end of part two, we stepped away from the United States and we're going to continue that journey. In part three, we're going to look at China, Germany and Japan, what their economic accounts are telling us, not just about those countries, but for the whole global economy. Welcome back to Eurodollar University. We're going to talk about the economic recovery and why I, Neil Kalinowski, and Jeff Snyder, of the head of global research for Alhambra Partners, we're not putting a lot of money on this recovery being sustainable and accelerating further. And you may be wondering, well, why is that? Well, because we've seen this story before, this pattern. We've seen it three times already. And just like all other patterns, there are these mileposts, these markers that we can observe that have occurred in previous iterations of this reflation. That we're seeing again. We've talked about them before. We talked about something called the landmine. We've talked about something called Collateral Day. And today we're going to talk about growth scare. Jeff, we've seen growth scares before. What is a growth scare? Can you define it for Eurodollar University students? Well, in
1: the last decade or so, as you pointed out, these repeating cycles, what ends up happening is we have a downturn, deflationary pressures that build up, and then we get to the bottom, we start to. it looks like recover, and every time we start to recover, is really nothing more than reflation, which is basically just the absent of further contraction, which is mistaken as full-blown recovery because it is merely presumed in all of the mainstream economics that if you're not in recession, you're in recovery. And there's nothing in between except the fact that we keep repeating these processes and establishing empirical evidence how there is varying degrees of recovery such that some recoveries aren't actually recoveries. They're really nothing more than reflation. So if we start out in this contraction, we get into a reflation that isn't a recovery, what ends up happening is because it's not really a full recovery, because it's weak, because there's lack of momentum, because there's still deflationary pressures in the monetary system that haven't been ironed out, then the reflation starts to die out. The forward momentum, that what looks like a recovery starts to look a lot less like a recovery and it starts to look like maybe it's exhausting itself and then potentially rolling over that's the growth scare. When the reflation, which is supposed to be recovery, stops looking like a recovery and starts looking like a reflation and b- brings up the potential of another downward swing in the cycle, that's what we're supposed to be scared about, which is the fact that we're we're nowhere near recovery and we're already seeing signs of material significant weakness, not just in one place or another, but in broad
0: fashion, all around the world, in a lot of different ways. Bingo, all around the world. And we're going to focus on the second, third, and fourth largest economies. We're going to look at China, Japan, and Germany, look at a few of their economic accounts to see if there's a growth scare that's taking place there. And the audience can join us by reading along at the Alhambra Investments blog on the 24th of November. You posted a a piece that's titled, The Growth Scare Keeps Growing Out of the Macro Money Illusion. Money illusion. I just read one of your pieces on Macro Peace Theater. It was episode 162. It was an article that you posted on the 11th of November at Alhambra Investments, and it was called The Wage and Economy Illusion. For those members of the audience, those bad, bad members who haven't listened to that episode, who have a life and things to do, very disappointing. For those people that haven't listened to that episode, can you tell us what is the money illusion?
1: Well, the money you illusion is specifically, you know, historically speaking, when Irvin Fisher first brought it up in, I believe, the late 1920s, what he was talking about is how uh, workers perceive their pay. For example, if you get a 5% nominal pay raise, you're going to be happy about that even if inflation's running 7% compared to a situation where you might not get a pay raise. But inflation is negative, or we have outright deflation, is 2%. We perceive the nominal growth in our paycheck and therefore believe and uh, correlate that with better economic fortune, better personal fortune in circumstances because we see our paycheck has gone up. But we don't realize we're actually being further behind in that situation. We're being left further behind, but because of this nominal money illusion. We see our pay go up and then we worry about how we're being left behind and we usually point the fingers at somebody else. There's something similar that happens in some of these economic accounts that aren't adjusted for inflation. And I'm not talking about GDP, real GDP, which does try to take into account of consumer prices and economic prices in broad fashion, but maybe things like global exports, trade, or retail sales that are not adjusted for inflation that can leave us with the wrong impression about what's really going on in terms of actual physical activity in the real economy. Sometimes we have a money illusion where If prices change a lot, that can change our perception when reality may not be
0: the same thing. Exactly. So we're going to be talking about nominal versus real. The nominal might be where the illusion is taking place. And if we could make an analogy, if we're talking about an economic account, we could compare it to price versus volume, value versus volume. The value would be the nominal. It's got the price embedded with it, but the real stuff. Is the volume, how many of these things are being transacted? And the first our first stop on this whistle stop tour will be China. We're going to be looking at Chinese imports of iron ore. We've got the chart up now. We've got two lines there. And Jeff, the big thick orange line signals reflation, choo-choo, takeoff, all aboard the train.
1: Woo! If not better, right? It's it's a 45-degree vertical angle. It's China's back, baby. They're yes. Building and building and building. It's it's like China of 2007 again. That's at least that's what it looks like because nominally they're importing iron ore in a fashion they haven't in so many years. It looks like mm-hmm. the, the communist government is back into
0: quantity growth again. But then we look at this dashed line, and Jeff, it's going the opposite direction. And that dashed line represents volume. It peaked in September 2020, or well earlier, earlier than that. Uh, yeah,
1: but, but it, right since September 2020, this, this is no longer really sideways. It really is going lower. So while see, the nominal yeah. value of Chinese imports of iron is going through the roof, it's nothing more than the price of the commodity. They're actually importing less physical, imp, less physical iron and iron ore, just to, or whatever they're called, iron ore. Related I products. Know. I can't remember the term off the top of my head. constant That's it. You would know that being in that space. So less actual iron ore, but the perception, if you only look at the nominal value or the, the imports by value, it looks like China is absolutely building like it did in the pre-crisis era, when in truth, they're just paying a lot more to do
0: less, which is Stunning. a very different situation. Completely, completely different. Stunning chart. Wow. Incredible. A true economic illusion. But maybe maybe that's just a one-off, Jeff. Now we're looking at Germany. We're going to look at German foreign trade. It's not as clearly visible here as the stark contrast with Chinese imports of iron ore. But we can still see it if we kind of zoom in there, if we squint our eyes. Exports by weight, Germany, versus exports by value, What's happening here in Germany?
1: The same thing. You're right. It's not to the same obvious degree, but it is the same exact thing going on just a, a, a little bit further down the spectrum, which is when we value German exports, either in dollars or euros, it looks like China, that like Germany's really exporting tons of stuff all around the world. It looks like a robust global recovery, like the one that we're talking about, like the one that the mainstream says is inflationary, except when we look at it by volume, like China and iron. What we see is that the Germans are actually exporting less actual physical stuff now than they were last year or two years ago. In fact, physical volume of German exports peaked back in 2018, and they have never recovered. So the prices of certain things have gone up, which makes, creates the appearance of a robust inflationary economy, when in fact, the physical volume of what's being exported out of Germany shows that it's really a lackluster and weak reflationary period that is now actually going in the opposite direction like China and iron we're getting weaker as this year rolls on. And I know what people are going to say. They're going to say, well, that's the inflation, right? That's the inflation. We're seeing the inflation in exports. But no, what we're seeing is the difference between volume and price is being driven by non-economic factors, not money printing, not the devaluation of currency, but basically the fact that we had a supply and demand, a classic supply shock, which creates this illusion of a robust economy when it's really just these imbalances being worked through. And what's left after we work through these imbalances in terms of price is the physical volumes, not the nominal levels.
0: And the volume is the real stuff. You know, this is the stuff that we have to eventually catch up to. You know, well, we think about just, it this way,
1: Emil, right? Yes. If you're a producer, you don't produce based on the nominal value. You produce the physical amount that's required from your customer book. So while in in an actual inflationary environment, you might say, well, the nominal orders that are coming my way, those are going to continue, you're still producing at the physical rate, not the nominal rate. And if you don't believe in the nominal prices, you realize that it's nothing more than a supply shock, you're not going to overproduce based on a low physical volume growth. You're going to look at the physical reality and say, this isn't really good. I'm happy I'm getting higher prices. But this doesn't look very good. I'm certainly not going to hire a ton of workers because I don't have any work for them to do. We're doing less today than we were several years ago. I might be making a little bit more money on the price side, but I sure as hell I'm not going to be burdening myself for the
0: future because it doesn't look like the nominal view at all. Are you going to be going and hiring more workers? Are you going to be increasing wages? If you're that producer, you're producing fewer widgets, you're not going to go and expand Even if the prices are higher, thinking, well, thank God the prices are higher. Miracle, finally something's broken my way. But you're not in the mindset of, well, oh, definitely got to expand. You're not going to see an inflationary wage spiral from this. Okay, another one. Let's go to Japan. And this one is pretty important, just like that Chinese iron ore imports. This one is very important. It's Japanese trade. Very important Uh, mirror view onto the rest of the world. And this one, like the Chinese boom in imports of iron ore, we are seeing exports of Japanese products that not only recovered from the plague, but surpassed or is about to. It reached that 2018 downturn. We've talked about it so many times, Jeff, that the downturn began in 2018, and that we're in so many different accounts. We're so far off the 2018 high, let alone where we are trying to get back to where we were before the pandemic. But here, this important account, nominal Japanese exports, we're right about to break through that high point in 2018. Great, great news.
1: Yeah, at the very least, the Japanese, again, these are in yen terms. So in nominal terms to to, to Japan, the Japanese export, remember Japan, like Germany, very very heavy export industrial economy. So this is important for Japan. Exports, as you said, they they're look like they're surpassing 2018, which to us is an incredibly low standard. But to the rest of the mainstream, this is some awesome achievement. Hey, at least they've recovered from 2018 as well as 2020 when nobody else seems to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Japan is at least in a very good situation because they've put forward, you know, they put the economy forward. The global economy has become so strong, whatever, robust. That it has allowed Japan to pull itself out of its full 2018 downturn to the point where exports are now
0: rising relative to their previous peak. And now, in yen terms. And now we pull the rug out from under the audience's feet. Talk to us about volume of exports, Jeff. They tell us an entirely different story.
1: Yeah, and it's there was already a mystery, like in Germany. When we look at exports, which again, the exports of goods are very important to Japan's economy, we should be able to see, well, if, if exports are rising, then shouldn't production be rising? Something like industrial production in Japan should match exports, and they do. They just don't match the nominal exports. So you see nominal exports re, re, uh, going, going much higher in 2020 and early 2021, so that nominally, it looks like Japan has erased its 2018 downturn, but then we flip over to volume, and we see that like Germany, like China, volume tells a very different story. So prices are up and in nominal terms, exports are rising. But why isn't production rising in Japan like Germany? Because nominal, or outside of nominal, in the actual volume of goods being being exported, it's actually less than it was two years ago. It was much less than it was three years ago. So there's no reason why Japan would produce more in terms of physical volume, because they're trading less than it, than it seems to be and when you look at it only in nominal
0: terms. Jeff, that's it for me. I've got one last quote here. Let me read it. <laughs> because of the unusual nature of the pandemic creating bottlenecks, a truly uninspiring global comeback was made to appear like a rip-roaring one, inflationy in its appearance. Value versus nominal value versus real and volume. That's it for me Jeff should we talk about the show or should we talk about your favorite thanksgiving side
1: Our favorite thanksgiving side I think is uh realizing that Japan Germany and China <laughs> isn't just about Japan Germany and China we're wow, thankful that we is- have these bellwethers and in indication because they tell us something very specific about the entire global economy so Japan's struggles its lack of recovery and its growth scare which is growth seems to be tailing off in the last half of 2021, isn't just about Japan. In the same way as Germany struggles, its lack of growth, its lack of volume growth, and its tailing off in 2021 isn't just about Germany. Like 2018, we knew a lot about what was happening in the global economy by looking at these three national situations and understanding what they were telling us. So it's not about Japan. It's not about Germany. It's not about China. It's about those and everything else. They're telling us something important about the direction for the global economy in the future, because trade is so important to the marginal
0: capacity for economic growth or lack of growth. I was listening to another podcast and they were discussing what's your favorite Thanksgiving side. And uh, they, they were interviewing an offensive lineman from the National Football League. And for the audience outside of America, those are the the big uglies in the trenches that try to push other people, other big uglies around. And uh, this offensive lineman said that his favorite Thanksgiving side is gravy. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. It's so true. Oh, I agree with him. I agree with him. My public service announcement to everyone is that cranberry is delicious with your Thanksgiving, but everyone is getting it in a jar or that can. That's not cranberry. It's like cranberry jelly. Please go buy yourself a bag of real cranberries, put it in the pot, put some sugar in there, a little bit of water, boil it down, and that's your cranberry topping. That's delicious. Please give cranberries another chance.
1: Yes, Jeff, we have we have coming coming in the very near future the Eurodoll University Cooking Channel. <laughs> Fortunately, it won't be in, it won't be up and ready in time for Thanksgiving. But we'll have Emil will have for you very specific and significant Christmas dinner
0: recipes for you. I love it. I love it. We'll throw in a few nudes. We'll have David do some illustrations. Fantastic calendar. Wonderful. Wonderful. Jeff, uh, we're recording this a day before Thanksgiving. People will probably not see it until after Thanksgiving, but uh, I'm very thankful that we're doing this show and I'm very thankful for the friendship that we've developed and for the audience that we've built and that we're educating people. And in the comments section, I think people are learning a lot. We're making a little bit of a difference and uh, I look forward to uh, keeping keeping on.
1: Absolutely, me too. Let me uh, echo those sentiments too, as well as uh, be thankful to our audience outside the United States who may be wondering what all this Thanksgiving stuff is about. We're thankful for them as well and as I am for you Emil so you take care you have yourself a great Thanksgiving. Do they have Thanksgiving
0: in the Cayman Islands? I can't imagine they do. It's wonderful Jeff. We have two Thanksgivings. There are so many Canadians here that we have the Canadian oh, have Thanksgiving. Okay. Yeah, people had no idea. I didn't know. I ignored Canada until I moved here because there are so many Canadians. It's uh I admit it. I'm sorry Canada. I did. But I ignored Canada. I didn't know anything about another Thanksgiving and then one day somebody said Well, it's Thanksgiving, and it was October. And I said, what's going on? So, yes, there's a Thanksgiving for Canada and a Thanksgiving for America, and uh, that's wonderful. The British, they don't have a Thanksgiving, and the Cayman Islands are a British overseas territory and all that. But if they do, that would be wonderful. Then we could have three days of gravy a year. Oh, please, let it come true.
1: And cranberries, Mm. real cranberries.